After last week's shooting in Uvalde, Texas, we asked you to call in with any questions or just to vent. Some of you had questions. I would like to know what average citizens like myself can do to stop gun violence. How many more of these have to happen? What can we actually do? How much power does the Second Amendment really have? And a lot of you just want to vent. Since 1999, this has just gotten worse. It is so easy to get a gun. It's not fair. But you don't have to have a requirement or a license or any training to purchase a handgun. This is preposterous. I want to take the AR-15 away. I'm just exhausted. I want to take ghost guns away. And overwhelmed. This kind of ammunition can put a great fruit-sized hole into an adult human being. It is going to take more than a bill to solve this problem. On the show today, we're going to hear what you had to say and answer your questions. If a shooter came in, I just think about that a lot. It's Today Explained. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's Today Explained. I'm Sean Ramos from On May 14th, it was the Buffalo shooting. On May 24th, it was Uvalde, Texas. Then over Memorial Day weekend, there were more than a dozen mass shootings. Nine people were killed. Something like 60 people were injured. That's just the everyday stuff that doesn't even really make the news. And then this week, four people were killed at a medical center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That one made the news. Around the exact time that happened, a student was shot outside of his high school in Los Angeles, and a gunman shot a woman outside of a nail salon in Pitson Township, Pennsylvania. No matter where you land on gun rights in America, no one wants to live like this. My name is Tanika. I'm calling from Westchester, New York. I have a four-year-old who I had an extremely hard time dropping off that daycare this morning. By the time I'd left her, I was in tears and shaking. Just this world isn't isn't fair. It's not it's not the kind of environment I want to raise my child in, and I, I don't really know what we do next. Hello, my name is Carter Nall. I am from uh, Indiana. I'm 22 years old. And it all just feels so hopeless. And I'm so angry. I became political in 2012 when I was a 12-year-old and I heard about the Sandy Hook shooting. That's when I decided I am against the people who let this happen as a 12-year-old. And all I can do is just try to channel that anger and that grief and that rage into action. Because at first I was like, oh man, they're, they're really going to pass some legislation. They're really going to fix this. And then it didn't happen. Instead, they did Alice drills. They made us train to defend ourselves. It's cowardly victim blaming. It's disgusting. And I just hope all the old people out there who are making money off of this 
uh, who profit from the slaughter of children, that your day of reckoning is coming when we vote you guys into oblivion. I have to hope for my kids that we can build a better world for them. Hello, uh, I am a Philadelphia uh, public school teacher and I'm obviously still processing everything that happened in Texas, um, thinking about coming into my classroom every day, sitting behind my desk, interacting with my students, but then also trying to think about worst case scenario of having to then use that same desk as a barricade to protect my students and myself. I keep yelling at the radio. Teachers, too. Every time I have to teach a class of kindergartners how to hide, every time I have to go home and tell my own kids that I would put myself in front of somebody to protect my students, and my own kids ask why those lives matter more, and I have to explain that they don't, but that I can't imagine allowing anything to hurt them. And whenever we have a drill, it makes me incredibly emotional for days. And in my classroom, whenever there's a drill for an active shooter or a threat, I have students who carry that fear and that worry and that burden. I remember feeling this fear when we had to do them during classes drills that you didn't know if they were drilled or not, and having people come and pull on the doorknob, bang on the door to make sure that you were quiet enough to just reinforce this fear in you. My entire middle school experience, my entire high school experience, I was always sort of like looking at people being like, is this a possible school shooter? You know, I'd see kids kind of being kids or being weird or mean or whatever, I'm thinking, like, is this, like, is you know, do I need to report this person? And so I didn't, um, but I thought about it all the time. I have a four-year-old autistic son who is in a public developmental pre-K program. I had to talk with his teacher earlier this year about what school shooting protocols would look like for his classroom. And the truth is, is that they would take all of these children into a quite small bathroom that is located in their room, but this is a classroom of young kids who don't do well being quiet or being still and his teacher was honest in saying that if a shooter came in their classroom isn't soundproof and that he would hear them he would know they were in there and she wouldn't be able to protect them. And um, I just think about that a lot. 
I think about all the kids who are and who have support needs, who have mobility needs, who can't run out of a school. I feel like they deserve to be part of this conversation, too. Hi, my name is Amy. I'm calling from London. My name is Marlene, and I'm calling from Houston, Texas. Um, My husband and I had a lot of conversations about moving back to the U.S. Um, My family are there. I miss them very much. We lived in Tijuana, Baja California, for uh, over five years. But I feel so much safer. I'm living in a country that regulates guns, a country where the Wikipedia entry for school shootings has one entry. Now that I've moved our family to Texas, it's always now in the front of my mind in regards to school shootings. Will my son make it back home? Um, You know, will he know what to do, not panic uh, when he's in school in case there's a shooting there? After that massacre, which happened in 1996, The U.K. government introduced regulations to limit personal handgun ownership. All these concerns that I never had when we were in Mexico, actually, even with the high crime rate in Mexico. And it has brought to my mind, should we move back to Mexico, at least when my son is still in school? because I know he will be safer there than he, I guess he would be here. I don't have to worry here about my very real child in the same way that all of my friends and all of my family, my sister, with her two children, they have to worry in a way that I just don't. And it's not fair. Having lived abroad, I've had arguments with people about whether this is the greatest country in the world. You know, the access to opportunity and innovation and income here, in some cases, is unparalleled certainly in parts of the country, uh, being able to, you know, for myself, be a queer woman, feel safe most of the time is a real privilege. I'm not going to act like there aren't so many privileges in this country, but I, I just keep thinking about all of the things, all of the ways in which this country is failing. this Americentric view that this is the greatest country in the world. It's pretty mind-blowing. When we're back, we're going to hear your questions and answer them. It's Today Explained. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is so cheap that Mint Mobile knows you think there must be a catch. Mint Mobile says, no, there is no catch. And for a limited time, their wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. 
get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. There's a $45 upfront payment that's required that's equivalent to $15 a month. This is for new customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan, and additional taxes, fees, and restrictions do apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Today Explained comes from Ramp. This ad goes out to all the finance professionals looking for love. I'm just kidding. Looking for a better way to simplify business finance across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting. And to all the accountants tired of the same old finance software, Ramp may be the answer you've been looking for. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. So what does that mean? Well, according to Ramp, they give finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. Issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions. Automate expense reporting so you don't waste time. Ramp says its accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so that you don't have to. That could put an end to chasing down receipts and to your employees spending hours submitting expense reports. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained, ramp.com slash explained. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions do apply. Do something. Just do something. For God's sake, do something. Today Explained, we listened to you vent about guns, but several of you had questions we wanted to answer too. We asked Dr. Megan Ranny for help answering them. I'm a practicing emergency physician and academic dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University in Rhode Island. If you're wondering why an emergency physician got interested in guns, look no further than the fact that the leading cause of death in American kids went from cars to guns a few years ago. Hi, this is Darren from Oregon, and I am cynical about anything that's going to change. I'm curious to understand how many more of these have to happen for every single person in the United States to be impacted directly. It is so normal and appropriate to feel angry, frustrated, and even cynical right now. I've been working on this issue for almost my entire career. And I'll be honest, on Tuesday afternoon, I called a bunch of friends and colleagues in despair. You know, how many more of these do we have to go through before we actually do something? The truth is that these mass shootings are relatively rare. That doesn't make them okay. Terrorism events are never okay, no matter how rare they are. What's also true, though, is that there are more than 100 deaths and more than 200 injuries by firearms every day across the United States. And I will say at this point, studies suggest that almost every one of us personally knows someone who has been hurt or killed by a firearm. The majority of those are not mass shootings. They are suicides, homicides, domestic violence, and accidental or unintentional injuries. I think the mistake is to think that those don't matter. The same Solutions that would help to reduce the number of mass shootings can also be used 
to reduce that daily toll of firearm injury across the country. Hi, my name is Alex Garcia from Southern California. I'm 32 years old. I have a four-year-old, and I, I, I'm finding it very difficult to explain this to him in a way that won't scare him. Um, but I, I feel like more needs to be done, maybe through the CDC or through some other uh, local government organizations that can really educate parents on how to safely educate their children on what to do during the school shooting or how to, you know, frame that um, in a way that they can digest it. So honestly, for a four-year-old, you don't need to talk to them about this. They don't need this fear in their world. They're probably doing lockdown drills at school already. I'll say my kids did them when they were in preschool. If they bring them up, you can talk to them about um, firearms or school shootings in general terms, the same way you would talk to your kid about doing a fire drill um, or about a thunderstorm. But you don't need to go into the gory details. It gets a little more complicated with older kids. I have a 13-year-old. Um, she's well aware of what's happened. And we've talked about some more specifics, and we've talked about what adults are trying to do to help keep her and her friends safe, and about what she can do as well. We got a ton of questions about policies. What kind of policies can we implement? What kind of policies have other countries implemented? Hi, uh, my name is Jill, and I'm calling from Rhode Island. And I'm wondering if you could do more research <laughs> or there could be more conversation about what the steps are that other countries, places have taken to do uh, after these mass shootings that have worked for them and what kind of effects it has had on gun ownership in those countries. There's a lot that the U.S. can learn from other countries while also recognizing that the U.S. is a unique place. You know, I look at Switzerland, where my sister actually lives. Next to the United States and Yemen, Switzerland has the highest per capita rate of firearm ownership, but their gun suicide and homicide rates are much lower, and their mass shootings are virtually non-existent. There's some good evidence already here in the United States about policies that can make a difference. Things like universal background checks, domestic violence restraining orders, where folks that have been convicted or under a restraining order for, for domestic violence lose access to their firearms, either temporarily or permanently. Uh, extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws. There's also a lot of culture change and a lot of work around identifying folks who are at highest risk, around denormalizing violence. When you look at Switzerland, there are a lot of factors that go into their low violence and death rates. And so the solution here is both policy and talking about the family, neighborhood, structural factors that have led us to this point. Hi, Sean and Noel. This is uh, Ted in Hamden, Connecticut. So my question for you that I'm curious is I am a local legislator. I'm a town council, and I, I ran for office to make a difference and make the world a better place. And there's we're working on things on the local level. But uh, while we wait for federal action to happen, is what is going on in the local level? Are the things local legislators like me can do to 
decrease gun violence and increase uh, gun control and gun safety. There are a lot of things that can be done on the local level. And in fact, we're seeing most of the progress around firearm injury prevention happening on the local level right now. The types of things you can do range from funding programs like Big Brothers Big Sisters or Boys and Girls Clubs to greening vacant lots and putting in community gardens. It's actually been shown statistically to decrease the rates of firearm injury in a community. Two, of course, working with your local police departments and courts to make sure that any laws that are in place are actually enforced, to maybe even passing new laws as well. Now, Connecticut already has pretty strict policies around safe storage, around permitting, around background checks, um, but there is often more to be done. In my home state of Rhode Island, although people who have been convicted of domestic violence are not legally allowed to own firearms, there have actually been studies showing that family court judges don't always ask about firearm ownership at the time that a decision is rendered. That's a really simple change that doesn't even require policy or new legislation, but can make a huge difference because domestic violence is one of the strongest predictors of someone killing someone else. From the local level, I don't know, to, to the maybe biggest question at the federal level, uh, some people uh, had some questions about just rethinking uh, some of the founding principles of this country. Hi, my name is Sam Myers, calling from Tucson, Arizona. And the most recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has got me thinking, is the U.S. system just irrevocably broken? And do we need to go back and start from scratch, like Chile is doing right now, rewriting its constitution? Gosh, we can't even get the Equal Rights Amendment through. <laughs> <laughs> you can't blame him for asking. Hi there. My name is Jalen. I'm from Canada. And watching all these mass shootings happen in the U.S., I think I hear a lot of fellow Canadians and, of course, people around the world saying, you know, this doesn't happen anywhere else but America. And to people that are pro-Second Amendment or pro-gun rights or whatever it is, what is the response when they are confronted with that objective truth that it's very clear there's a correlation between accessibility to guns and the amount of mass shooting events? And America's unique accessibility to guns is very much connected to mass shootings. How, how do they confront that statement. You are exactly right that a mass shooting happens when someone with hatred or a suicidal impulse has access to that lethal means. There is a long pathway that gets them there. And there are a lot of moments where intervention can happen, both around reducing access to firearms for folks with histories of violence um, or hatred or uh, various types of convictions. DUIs are actually a big predictor of hurting someone else through education of folks that are already firearm owners about how to recognize risk. And one of those really important things is recognizing that 40% of Americans are firearm owners or have a firearm in the house. There are 400 million firearms in private hands right now in the United States. Those are facts. And we've got to figure out ways for firearm owners and non-firearm owners to work together to commit equally to reducing this scourge. I mean, look at our COVID response, too. Uh, we're a bit more politicized and divided right now in general. Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes I fear that we're going to get worse before we get better. But the only way we'll get better is by a bunch of us trying to get there. The last question I have for you was the one we got the most. And it maybe wasn't even a question as much as it was a frustration. And it was just that people have this real sense that nothing is going to change because they've seen it all before. I go back to that tweet from Dan Hodges, a British journalist who talked about once America decided slaughtering children was fine, this was over. And I really feel that's true. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm 41 years old. And since 1999, this has just gotten worse. Thank you for your time. I don't know who will listen to this, and I know it won't change anything, but my heart is broken. I'm an emergency room physician. I take care of folks every shift who are in the worst moment of their lives. And I know that the moment when I give up is the moment when there is no more hope. I will say I have not given up for this epidemic. And not just me, but thousands of other physicians, thousands more public health professionals, social workers, counselors, parents across this country, firearm owners and non-firearm owners alike, are equally committed to fixing this. And I think, you know, it's really normal to be angry and frustrated and sad right now. I also would implore us to keep going in whatever way makes sense to you, because that's the only way that we do make progress. And I believe we can get there, but we only do it together. <laughs>